independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons, as well as our Green Dreamer planners that you can check out at greendreamer.com shop. To support this independent show and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. When you're in an unstable environment when it comes to housing, it causes so much stress on your life that it becomes very, very difficult for you to be a productive member of society and becomes this very deep cascading swirl of events that drags you down and away from the chances of being healthy and healthy in many different ways. That was Pete Gombert, the co-founder of IndieDwell, a public benefit corporation focused on building durable, healthy, energy-efficient homes that also are affordable to help address our housing crisis. Besides that, Pete also started the Goodwell Certification, which is a system certifying companies that are ethical employers. You may have heard of the organization 1% for the Planet, which we featured back in episode 101. Well, they're one of the most notable Goodwell certified entities. So we're going to explore what it means for employers to meet Goodwell's minimum ethical standard and how that supports employee satisfaction and welfare, how affordable housing is connected to public health and environmental justice, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I was raised in a, a pretty conservative family where we, we were brought up to believe that everybody was afforded the same opportunity in this country and that you would, you know, everybody had the opportunity to sort of raise themselves up by their bootstraps and, and make something of themselves. And that came from sort of the history of my family. So my father was the first one in his uh, family to go to college. Nobody in my mother's family went to college. So we were a very blue blue collar family. And so really instilled in me from a very early age was just this concept of individualism and, and the ability to go out and do whatever you needed to to make yourself better. As I grew up, as I went to college, as I went and started my career, and as I became an entrepreneur, that was the mindset that I had was, you know, we all have the same opportunities. And it wasn't until later on in, in my life, really around the period of the, the Great Recession, so 2008, 2009, where I started to open my lens and start to look broader and, and consider different possibilities. I'd say the first book that 
sort of made me think about things a little bit differently was Let My People Go Surfing by Yves Chouinard, founder of Patagonia, where in reading his words, uh, it, it just gave me a completely different perspective on, A, what the, the power of business could do, but B, also the concept that we all come from different places, different backgrounds, we all have different challenges, and for me, being a, a white male growing up in a, in a suburban neighborhood of, of Chicago with two parents who, who loved me and, and cared for me, that were able to put me into a good school where I never had to worry about a meal and really could just focus on developing myself and getting a good education, that's a very, very different place to come from than you know somebody that is, is growing up in, say, a difficult area of Los Angeles with one parent, a single mother, and and maybe a father in prison with no opportunities afforded to them who are concerned about where they're going to eat their next meal. And to say that we all start in the same place became to seem like kind of a foolish idea. So I started considering lots of different things at that time. You know, some were very related to business. Some were very related to sort of kind of my role and, and the role that I might play in regards to social equity. And and so that was that was sort of the beginning and opened up this Pandora's box as I started to dive deeper into that space about what we could and should be doing as good responsible citizens, let alone good responsible corporate citizens. And so I stayed in my my role at the existing company that I had started for another few years, but nothing felt right after that. I started to try to incorporate these ideas of, of social equity into the business and, and corporate social responsibility into the business, yet everything that I had done to that point was was very much about creating shareholder value and, and didn't take a lot into consideration when it came to stakeholder value. So the primary venture of yours that I'd love to focus on is Dwell, which you co-founded with Scott Flynn. Can you give us a background of the societal issues that you set out to tackle with this company, as well as what we need to know about affordable housing and its standards of quality for low-income and underserved communities in the United States today? Yeah, so interestingly, my background is all in software, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> built and sold three software companies over the course of my career. And after my last one, I had founded a public benefit corporation called Goodwell that was focused on helping other organizations build what I call fair, equitable, and humane workplaces. And Scott, uh, at the time, was running a, a company here in Boise that was building high-end, net-zero ready, very healthy custom homes and really targeted at kind of the top 10% of the income ladder. Scott is a chemical engineer by training that, that got really interested in building science, uh, so in the built environment, and, and then very deeply passionate about um, sort of environmental and sustainability issues. And as I started talking about Goodwell more publicly, he said that's the kind of company that we want to be, help us develop our culture in a way that is fair, equitable, and humane. As we got to know one another, he basically told or told me about this vision that he had to be able to take the same product that he had been building for the top 10% of the income ladder and make it available to the remainder of the income ladder. And so at the time, we weren't even thinking about kind of affordable housing. What we were thinking about was 
the fact that it is better for the occupant and it's better for the environment to have people live in this quality of home, something that is, it's built with sustainable materials. It's built in a very, very energy efficient way, which helps us to reduce the demand on the grid and use of fossil fuels. It's built with very, very healthy products inside and with a structure that, that really enhances the indoor air quality uh, of the unit. And so, and it's built with very, very durable materials so that we don't have to keep replacing things as they wear out quickly. And so that was really intriguing to me and and, uh, something that I hadn't really thought about a lot, but I also saw it as an opportunity to be able to create a large scalable business where we could do something very, very different with the employment situation in the housing industry. As we thought about doing that, we said, well, gosh, we can create this wonderful product of housing. And at the same time, we can create a, a company who gives opportunity to the workforce, we call them teammates, that they have never experienced before. So things like year-round work, as simple as that, 100% paid healthcare costs, medical, dental, vision, uh, a living wage for every employee, even if you have no experience. And most importantly, ownership in the business. You know, the, the industry just doesn't do that. And so it became this kind of idea of a, a social enterprise that we could create from scratch that not only created an environment very intentionally around how we treat the people that are working with us on this mission, but the product of which would be something that was desperately needed across the country. And starting out with these intentions from the beginning has proven to be really, really incredible, far exceeded sort of my expectations of how the world would react to what we were doing. So everything that you just mentioned in terms of the benefit to your employees, those are things that can't be expected of uh, people that currently work in the affordable housing space or? Um, I would I would argue quite the contrary. I think that I think it can be expected of of any industry and any environment. It's a matter of uh, the business leaders being um being very intentional around creating social equity in, in what they're doing. I think that we have people all the time, our employees, our teammates come up and ask, like, I don't understand what you guys are doing. And we're like, what are you talking about? And they say, well, you guys took all the risk, you put all the money in, and yet you're giving us part of the company? Like, I don't get it. And, and we've had people come as far as – as or go as far as saying, I don't trust you. Mm. Too good to be true. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, nobody's ever given me anything in in my life. And, and, you know, it's a really, really sad commentary on, on the state of our society, but it's, it's very true. And now we see it in spades because everybody we bring into the environment in, into Indie Dwell, you know, is essentially saying the same thing to us. This is a it's a completely different culture than they've ever experienced. And we're creating a different opportunity for them than they could experience anywhere else. And I think that that's that's really sad. It it 
it to me speaks to the uh, the inherent cultures that we're creating, where this focus on on shareholder value is has been taken to an extreme uh, that isn't necessary. So. I think any company can go about doing this and, and do it in a way that will provide tremendous benefit to not only the employees, but to every stakeholder that touches that company. I really do see it as um, as significantly beneficial. And it may not be beneficial to the bottom line. I think you hear a lot about how there is no trade-off when you start thinking about a triple bottom line. And, and I think that, that we do ourselves a little bit of uh, an injustice when we talk that way. And, and what I mean by that is there are costs associated with this. You know, we, we are paying 100% of healthcare in an industry that doesn't pay any healthcare. There's a, there is a monetary cost to that. We're paying wages that are above market. There's a monetary cost for that. We're giving 20 days of holiday or paid vacation to every employee. There's a cost for that. Paternity and maternity leave. There are, there are hard costs to all of these things. We build our product in a, in a way that is more expensive than we need to because we, we think it's the right thing for the planet and we think that it's the right thing for our customer because you're, you're living in a better environment that's going to cost you less and it's going to be more durable. And we take that, the cost of those things and we reduce our margin. And so we're not as profitable as we could be. But what we are is we have tremendous demand for our product. And we think we're going to build and we're in the process of building a really tremendous company that adds a lot of value. So what it takes to me, you know, from my perspective is the willingness for the capital owners and for the entrepreneurs to be open to the concept of making a little bit less. And when you look at hugely successful companies, I think it's hard to argue that anyone needs to be making that much money. And that, that is a, you know, that's a third rail topic that nobody really wants to touch. But I, but I think it's, it's the right one because if we're going to create more economic equity and social equity, it's got to give somewhere. We can't have this this concept that that a triple bottom line and 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 looking at all the stakeholder values has no costs, and those have to be born somewhere. Um, and I think that those those do ultimately get get born in some sense by you know capital and and by some of the early early investors in terms of sweat equity, and those are usually the entrepreneurs. I feel like one of the biggest challenges and even illusions of our society is that financial value is ultimately what's been propped up as the ultimate goal. But as you said, when you do focus on the triple bottom line, that financial uh, gain may be a little bit less. I mean, people view that as being more costly when you're more responsible. But at the same time, you also gain other things that really do matter to us as humans as well, like being able to develop deeper relationships with other people or having safer environments or having uh, a greater sense of purpose in in the work that we do. So there are all, all of these other uh, intangible values that are not taken into account in the financial bottom line. So that's it, right. Yeah, it is a cost to financial bottom line, but at the same time, it also enriches our lives in other ways as well. 
It does. And, and those, interestingly, can provide financial benefit to, to the organization. So when you create this environment where people want to work, it's much easier to recruit. We don't incur the same recruiting expenses that some organizations do. It also creates much, much deeper relationships with the teammates that we have on board so that we have a, a lower attrition rate than would, would typically be seen in this industry. And so there's huge costs associated with attrition, having to go out and recruit additional people, having to retrain them, downtime and so forth. And those do provide real financial benefits. I think the fact that you've got tremendous demand coming to us uh, reduces our sales and marketing expense. There's, there are financial benefits. I just think if we get caught up in that, the concept that every dollar we spend needs to have an ROI associated with it, we lose the picture, like you're saying, of, of what the social benefits can be. And the fact that what the world needs is more social benefit, more social equity, and a little less focus on individual profit. Well, back to the affordable housing piece. As I was preparing for this interview, I came across this article, and I want to read an excerpt from it. Uh, the article is from the Brookings Institution, titled Rebalancing Medical and Social Spending to Promote Health, Increasing State Flexibility to Improve Health Through Housing. It states that although the United States spends considerably more of our GDP on medical services than other developed nations, our health outcomes are no better and in many areas, much worse. Even more significant, perhaps, is when we look at health spending compared with spending on social services. The U.S. is a noticeable outlier. On average, nations that are members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development spend about $1.70 on social services for every $1 spent on health services. The U.S. spends just $0.56. Cents. So in other words, most, most of these other nations spend more than double on social services than they do on health care compared to the United States, which is an outlier in spending less on social services compared to health care. Or really, I feel like it's really sick care, to put it bluntly. But um, certainly there's a lot of layers to pick apart there in terms of the relationship between social services spending and public health outcomes. Some factors show stronger correlations than others, but among the key points made is that there is relatively strong evidence that expenditures that improve access to safe, affordable housing also improves population health. And that seems pretty intuitive, too. But can you speak more to this relationship between our affordable housing issues, economic inequity and our public health issues? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating development in the in the housing industry. I think if you ask people in social services and in in housing that have been in in the industry for a long time, they'll say, you know, of course. But now the science is coming out, the data is coming out to actually prove that housing and health are are directly related. And there is a causality there. It's not just a correlation, but there is a causality and and I think there are two elements to that. What most of the science and most of the data is pointing to are the social determinants of health and housing. And, and essentially what they're saying is 
when you're in an unstable environment when it comes to housing, it causes so much stress on your life that it becomes very, very difficult for you to be a productive member of society and becomes this very deep cascading swirl of events that that drags you down and away from the the chances of being healthy and healthy in many different ways, whether that is physically healthy, mentally healthy, or even as simple as being able to hold down a job. Um, so we're, we're incurring these stresses on our lives that are unnatural to us. And therefore, those stresses get passed on to the general public in the form of healthcare costs or sick care costs, as you mentioned. And so that is a big, big emerging field of, of science and data. And I think it's, it is proving to be really smart and to be a good investment for cities, counties, states to start thinking about being able to provide access to safe, affordable housing because you are ultimately, even if you're just looking at it financially, you ultimately are going to be saving money by housing those that were to other otherwise be accessing services from a from an unstable housing environment the second component which is is a lot less discussed but but maybe a lot more intuitive is the physical determinants of health and so when we live in an environment we spend 70ish percent of our time indoors and when we're in an environment where you've got volatile organic compounds that are are being off-gassed from the the elements that are in your home you are inhaling essentially chemicals that that make you sick and oftentimes in the in the affordable housing industry we are using those products because they are less expensive and so ensuring that we not only are providing access to housing but that housing has the right elements to create a a healthy indoor air quality things like an energy recovery ventilator which we include in every one of our homes to be able to bring fresh air in 24 hours a day via hepa filter and, and pump out stale air are critical to maintaining indoor air quality using the right materials up front that don't off gas VOCs and are, are we try to make everything carb two compliant, which is the California Air Resources Board. You know, that's essential as well. So you don't put people into an environment and then if they do bring uh, into an unhealthy environment and if they do bring in unhealthy things like furniture or, or carpet that does have VOCs, you've got a mechanism to help them and basically pull that bad air out so they're not taking in toxins uh, during the 70% of the time they're spending in their, uh, in their home. So you touched on this earlier, but can you walk us briefly through exactly how Indeedwell makes your modular homes and how does it in integrate these values for health and sustainability within it? Yeah, so the first thing is we, we start actually by using an exoskeleton, uh, which is a decommissioned shipping container. And we did that for two reasons. One is we build our, our housing in a factory and we need to ship it to uh, its final destination. And shipping containers are built to ship. And so they are incredibly strong. They've got a very, very strong exoskeleton. Therefore, when we pick them up, 
we are able to move them to their final destination without, without a whole lot of cracking of drywall or rework that needs to be done once we set it on its final foundation. The second thing, second reason is you've got 9,000 pounds of steel, which took a lot of embedded energy to create. And to take that and move it into the waste stream just seemed like a, a hugely wasteful use of, of this very expensive, from an energy perspective, material to collect. And so we thought there had to be a better better use for this. And, and this is not a new idea. The first shipping container house was built in 1986. But nobody's really been able to do it at scale in the way that we're doing it. And that includes completely cladding both sides of the of the container, both inside and out. So when we're done with it, you can't tell it was a shipping container to begin with. We use a patent-pending wall assembly that creates a net-zero ready home from an insulation perspective uh, with a double continuous thermal break. So it becomes this very, very high-performing home. And then again, we like I said, we, we have built a process that is nearly waste-free in the production process. And if you ask anybody in the, in the construction industry, one of the huge um, sort of dirty secrets is how much waste there is. There's a tremendous amount of waste. So the fact that we work in a factory-controlled environment and can produce in a nearly waste-zero or zero-waste environment is phenomenal. And, and we're moving towards carbon neutral in 2020. As an organization, we build in factories that are generally located outside of the major metro. We try to target areas that are in need of workforce and and economic development. In fact, just on Monday, we announced our second factory down in Pueblo, Colorado. It'll be 100,000 square feet. It'll employ 200 people. And we'll be producing about 1,000 modules of, of housing per year out of that environment that'll ship Largely in Colorado, but could also, you know, be shipped down to New Mexico and Arizona and over to Utah. So the houses, as they roll out of the factory, are are net zero ready. They are what's called modular construction. So once they're placed on a on a foundation, they're treated exactly the same as if you would have that home stick built by wood on site. Um, so they can be mortgaged the same way. They can be insured the same way. These are not mobile homes, which are personal property. They're, they're just like a traditional home. And then we build with very, again, high-end, durable materials. So solid core doors and pellet windows and quartz countertops and commercial-grade flooring. So it's a, it's a really, really beautiful home when we're done with it. I'm just really inspired by how many cross-sectional and multi-layered issues Indeedswell is tackling at the same time. And I really want to encourage our listener to check out your website at Indeedwell.com because the houses are stunning and they are not what people may typically think of when we just hear the word container homes. And like you said, your process of creating these homes is different than most types of buildings that we may be familiar with in that your modular homes are created in a factory and then delivered to people once they're mostly complete. So what are the practical uses of Indeedwell's modular homes? As in, do people have to be able to first afford to purchase their own land in order to get one of Indeedwell's houses? Or how has Indeedwell made it easier for low-income and underserved communities to own and live in one of your homes? It's a great question. 
our housing can be configured in a number of different ways. So we have single family models, but then we are also doing quite a bit of what's called commercial multifamily, which is condos and apartments. And we found that the the most cost effective way for us to be able to deliver housing is to work with nonprofit developers, for-profit developers, cities, foundations, counties that where, where we're doing something at scale. The other the other way that that you could do this is what's called infill, which is where somebody just goes finds a lot and and buys one of our houses and installs it and. We found that to be very, very difficult. It's a slow process. It's a long process. Most people don't know how to go through that development cycle. And so we're really focusing on larger scale developments. So whether that is a community that we're developing or whether it's an apartment or condo complex that we're developing. And that means that we're working with organizations largely who then rent or sell that that unit to the, uh, the end customer. So Indeedswell is not only a public benefit corporation, but also a Goodwell certified company, as you mentioned earlier. And that is uh, one of your big projects as well that you spearheaded. When people see this Goodwell certification label for Indeedswell and elsewhere, what can we expect of how employees are treated and how is that actually tested or audited in practice? So so Goodwell is very similar to a B Corp certification, but it's got some key distinctions. IndieDwell is a public benefit corporation. That's how we're formed. But we are also a certified B Corp and Goodwill certified. And we think both are important. I love the, the B Corp mission and the certification process is, is wonderful. What Goodwell does, which is a little bit different, is there are only 11 metrics that we test against. There are, I think, 200 or or over 200 now that B Corp tests, so it's much more comprehensive. Ours are at Goodwell are very focused on employment, and so it's it's the treatment of the employees that we're focused on. Those 11 metrics all have a pass-fail bar that you need to get over, and you have to pass all 11. So in the B Corp realm, you have basically an aggregate score that you get in order to become B Corp certified. In Goodwell, Goodwell's world, it is a binary pass-fail. Basically, the concept was every company should be doing these 11 things right. There is no wiggle room because we're, we're creating the floor of what every company should be doing. So it's simple things like a CEO to median employee wage that is reasonable. It's 100 to 1. Um, So if your average wage is is, or your median wage is $30,000, you can make $3 million as a CEO. So you can see it's not an excessive bar that we're trying to set. Everybody should be doing this minimum amount. So we're, we're measuring things like pay ratios, we're measuring employee attrition, we're measuring safety at work, uh, we're measuring the use of underage workers. So they're really, really basic metrics. The one thing where we've got a little bit more sophistication and not everybody is doing it is we use what's called the employee net promoter score. And that was borrowed basically from the customer net promoter score, which is the the question we've all been asked, which is how likely are you to recommend this product or company to a a friend or colleague? We use that internally. We use it to say, how likely are you to, to recommend this workplace to a friend or a colleague? And then that gives you a score, which is determining employee engagement. 
And so we use that in a pretty sophisticated way to be able to, to measure employee engagement. And we found that to be really, really powerful. It's one of the things that the companies who get Goodwill certified um, become pretty addicted to uh, and really want to see that score improve over time. So you've created the Goodwill certification to help empower employees and to ensure their well-being, welfare and safety within companies. And there are definitely other labels out there addressing other social or environmental issues as well. Um, This is kind of a bigger picture qualitative question. When you take an overview of the biggest corporations that exist today, what do you see as our most urgent common issues that they may currently be aggravating and that they need to address? and therefore may implicate the most meaningful certifications that we should encourage them to get certified for? Yeah, that's a great question. And my two real areas of concern are around social equity and the environment. And so I think that the the reality of our world today is that we are creating more inequity than we have seen in, in a very, very long time. And, and that inequity is usually resolved in ways that we don't like to talk about. We've seen early signs that society is fed up with the way that it's it's being treated and the, the escalation of capital inequity, uh, the creation of these uber high net worth individuals through the the capitalistic society that we have today and you know we've seen that before in history and it usually ends in either war or revolution and and i don't think anybody is excited about those outcomes so i think we need to think a little bit differently about how we value human capital how we are paying people treating people employing people i think that's a huge issue at the same time it would be sort of ignorant of me to say that the largest companies in the world don't have a responsibility to the planet that we live on. And so I think they, in different markets, there are different marks which indicate which companies are taking sort of responsibility for the state of the planet and who are acting responsible, uh, responsibly. And, and so you have to look at those things like, you know, whether it is, you know, the Rainforest Alliance or whether it is B Corp certification you know, whether it is is using organic cotton, you know, there are there are a number of different we're, we're a little bit mark heavy right now. So you have to really be a, a an informed consumer. And, and I think that that's the other side of the equation. I think the corporations will today and hopefully this changes, but they will always act in their own self-interest. And I think one of the things that we preach a lot about in this in this world of social responsibility is the fact that every time you and I and every other consumer goes out and buys something, we're making a vote for something that is responsible or something that is is not responsible. And and that is the way that this world works. And and so what we are hoping to do at Goodwill and, and I think what B Corp is hoping to do is create an easy way for consumers to be informed about which companies are doing things right and which aren't. So that we as consumers can vote with our dollars because until it there is an economic incentive or disincentive for these large companies to act in a really responsible way, it's going to be slow, slow sledding. And so I think the more we can shift public consciousness to have the consumer behave in, in a way that votes every day for responsibility the faster we'll see the the economics of the way that the largest companies behave change. 
oddly enough, companies right now have to voluntarily prove themselves to be responsible <laughs> and they have to get certified and verified to show that they're doing things correctly, whereas a lot of companies that may not be so responsible may not even be punished for their negative externalities. And you may have just answered my next question, but what do you think needs to happen so that all companies can move away from this outdated business model to only serve their financial bottom lines and towards existing to serve and benefit our humanity and our one shared home? I am an optimist. Um, and, and so I am I'm hopeful that we are seeing an emerging awareness across the board. I hope I'm not living in an echo chamber where I just see the news that I want to see. But we're starting to see signs that even the most firmly entrenched shareholder driven organizations are starting to recognize that they have a responsibility behind beyond the shareholder. You know, we've seen things like Larry Fink from BlackRock's letter all the way to the Business Roundtable's letter that that is are starting to show cracks in the in the old school armor. And and I'm super hopeful that business as a whole sees its responsibility and seizes upon that without any economic incentive. The jaded side of me says that isn't going to happen really quickly or nearly quickly enough for us. And that, and that's where I think consumers have a responsibility to start supporting brands who are doing things the right way. Unfortunately, the reality that we deal with is that not everybody has the ability to make those choices. You know, when you get down into the lower socioeconomical realms of the ladder, you don't have a choice. You have to buy the cheapest product that is there. And that is another vote for irresponsibility. And that's unfortunate because you can't blame the consumer when that's all they can afford. And there, there seems to me to always be a company that is willing to play that role uh, and deliver the product that is has a short-term benefit, usually economic for them, and a long-term consequence to, to the planet or to society. Honestly, I don't know what the answer is there, whether you look towards government regulation to enforce certain levels of standards, whether you look towards, you know, some mechanism of subsidy to allow people to buy products that is more responsible. All of those solutions are very complicated and are going to be darn near impossible to uh, to implement. So the best I can hope for is from the top down, the organizations see the need and, and change willingly. And from the bottom up, as many consumers who have the ability to choose are choosing responsibility so that the remainder who don't have the choice to choose uh, at, at the moment can buy what they need. And, and hopefully the whole market shifts and sustainability becomes very efficient. You're listening to Green Dreamer with Kamea Shane, and we're now going into a mindful musical intermission before closing off with our final five. Don't wait any longer Cause the night is drawing in And the sun's getting stronger While the ice is wearing thin Come out of the shadows So your voice can be received Don't stand on the sidelines Come fight for the air that you breathe Cause we all have the power to change 
What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Let My People Go Surfing is still my my Bible when it comes to doing things right at business. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Uh, that all people are good, inherently. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Mindfulness. Uh, what's one thing you're working on to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Uh, indie Dwell. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? I think rising awareness. Well, Green Dreamer, to stay updated on Pete's work at Indie Dwell, you can head to www.indiedwell.com. You can also follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Indie Dwell. And you can find more information about the Goodwell certification at goodwellworld.com. Pete, if our listener would like to support the work that you're doing, what cause to action would you like to share? I think the big call to action is not specifically around anything that I'm doing. It is create that awareness to purchase products that are responsible. And and I don't think there's anything more important as a consumer than to vote every day with your dollars. Well, thank you so much for sharing this deeply thought-provoking and insightful conversation with me. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep a positive attitude, become more aware, and support everyone that you possibly can that is doing even the smallest thing right. 